People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trojan welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note right here on Fine Music Radio. I have with me here in the studio, and I wish there were cameras and things, television-wise, I have the most magnificent book called Cape Town's Dockland by Brian Ingpen. And let me read you this. This most attractive, high-quality documentary takes readers from the wooden jetties of yesteryear to today's towering container gantries and the waterfront's allure through its evocative text and its over 750 carefully selected illustrations, you can almost smell the sea, you can taste the salt, you can see the cargoes, while on every page are images, stories, details, and descriptions of ships from Union Castle's legendary mail ships, coasted and container ships, to tramp ships, tankers, tugs, and trawlers. It is a nostalgia overload in many, many ways. But let me tell you about its author, Brian Ingpen, who has roamed Cape Town's Docklands for nearly seven decades, boarding ships as a youngster, watching cargo work in the pre-container era, fascinated by the variety of ships that passed this way, riding on those old steam tugs and meeting people from across the world. And he watched the mail ships leave with their characteristic punctuality, surrounded by excitement and emotion. And Brian is with me here in the studio with this beautiful book. Brian, before we even start, I just have to say congratulations on a truly magnificent publication. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rodney. This is going to be a coffee table book par excellence, and I can't stop paging through it. I think the most obvious question to ask you, first of all, is why did you write it? Why did you publish it? Well, I've been, as you've said, uh, involved in the harbour one way or another over many years. But many, many years, aren't they? Yes, it's uh, (laughs) longer than I care to remember, I suppose, but it's been fun. It's been absolutely great fun. There have been moments of drama. There have been moments of memory. Everybody remembers Union Castle. And then there were the old cargo ships, the tram ships that came in, the tankers and all the others. It's just been a wonderful experience for me, walking around the harbor, riding on the tugs, just getting involved. I spent a few years uh, with Safarine as well, but it was my childhood memories that actually came to the fore. And I also had the privilege of walking around the harbor during the school Christmas holidays with George Young, who was the the uh, leading shipping journalist, certainly in Africa and probably among the best in the world uh, for school holidays. It was just great fun. And I was introduced to this world of shipping. And it's a a lively world. It's a dynamic world. It's a world that is really interesting. Mm. And, of course, in those days you saw the cargoes. Uh, Now they're hidden in boxes. (laughs) The cargoes are bales of wool or timber or whatever it was. And and that was fun. The coasters coming in from Durban with their cargoes of sugar, their cargoes of rolled paper, um, the Lever Brothers products, and so on. It was it was just a lively world that appealed to me as a as a youngster. But why? How how did it start? How did this uh, attraction begin? Why were you attracted to the harbour? Can you remember a specific incident? 
No, I can't really. My my father was more interested in yachts. Uh, not that he could afford a yacht. Uh, in fact, he could only <laughs> afford just about to get to look at the yachts. But the other side of the harbour was where the, the ships were, and that's where I was uh, focused. Mm-hmm. And then we rode on tugs. You know, it was a Sunday afternoon, Saturday afternoon excursion, school holidays, etc. And it was a, an era when one had contact with ships and contact with the people on board those ships. I, mm-hmm. I walked on board ships as a kid, mm-hmm. and uh, they would say, okay, but don't go there or just watch this or whatever, and never chased away. Never and chased now, away. look how different it is. Uh, now it's different. completely out of bounds, isn't it? Yes. As I say, razor wire and rottweilers now keep kids away, mm-hmm. and uh, there are r- good reasons for that, but uh, sadly, in their planning for the security, they haven't allowed the public access to the ships uh, or, or near the ships to see actual working harbor. Mm-hmm. Um, the Cape Town passenger terminal is a case in point where one can have a reasonable view of ships, but uh, it would be so much easier if, for example, Cape Town's breakwater were open to the to the public, where people used to fish, not just for leisure, but some of them actually for their, their food. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, it's a great pity that that's been closed. And uh, you know, the security hawks will say it's for security reasons, but there's no way on earth it can be a security. Well, that's uh, what I was just going to ask you. How can that pier, the breakwater, how can that be a security risk? Unless someone's going to stand there and lob a bomb at a ship. Well, then, you know, one asks why the uh, various countries bring their warships into the waterfront. Um, <laughs> very, very much closer. <laughs> yes. And, you know, the waterfront has, to a large extent, kept the maritime atmosphere alive, and it's been a wonderful project, that, and mm-hmm. and full marks to those who who dreamed of it and who put it into action and who carrying on with it. But um, I do wonder why we, we are kept away from things when uh, even electronic media would allow close-up viewing of containers being loaded, of all the other things that are happening in the harbor, um, you know, one remembers those big tankers that came in in the 1950s uh, for their survey dry docking. And uh, they were then the largest ships in the world. They were not longer than the Queen Elizabeth, the passenger ship at the time, but they were they had a bigger dead weight and so therefore were classed as the biggest ships in the world. Mm-hmm. And the whole of Cape Town turned out to, <laughs> to see them. It was just hundreds of people sad. down there to see these big tankers come in. And, of course, Mm -hmm. they're tiny tankers compared to what we have today. But nevertheless, at the time, they were the largest ships in the world. And and sadly, we've lost that. And and I think Cape Town has also lost contact with with the shipping world. And part of that is due to the demise of the point-to-point passenger services that we used to have. Um, We don't have that anymore. you know, now if Granny's arriving, she comes to the airport, and the kiddies go along and look at the planes. Yes, uh, she doesn't come by sea. Whereas my grandparents, when they came down from Durban uh, to stay with us, they came on the Cape Town Castle, and there they were uh, at the top of the gangway. My grandfather dressed in his hat and uh, and suit. My grandmother dressed as if she was going to the races. It was it was just simply. Um, uh, an era that we had contact with and we had contact with the ships because people traveled by sea in those days mm-hmm. and uh, now it's all aircraft. 
all aircraft. And you've got, talking about Union Castle, I'm glad uh, there's almost an emphasis on Union Castle in this book because they've been such an integral part, haven't they, of South Africa and England. But before we talk more about that, Brian, what is your first choice of music? Um, I'm one of these old-fashioned types, and I'm afraid uh, for regular listeners to find music radio, I would <laughs> be regarded as a bit of a philistine, I suppose. But um, I've gone for music of the 50s and 60s that I remember as a teenager, and uh, one or two later ones as well. And one of the voices that appealed to me, uh, even as a, a young teenager, was that of Jim Reeves, with oh, his gosh, beautiful, yes. deep deep voice yes. Kimberly and, Jim. And one could hear his words as well which was uh, fantastic and the first one I've chosen is a nice romantic one called I Love You Because by Jim Reeves I love you because you understand it Every single thing I try to do You're always there to lend a helping hand I love you most of all because you're you No matter what the world may say I know your love will always see me I love you for the way you never doubt me But most of all I love you cause you're you The door to happiness you open wide No matter what the world may say about me I know your love will always see me through I love you for a hundred thousand There we heard Jim Reeves, maybe a first on Fine Music Radio to hear that voice. I love you because, and it was the first choice of my guest indulging in nostalgia here, Brian Ingpen, well known as a columnist in the Cape Times. How long has your column been running on ships uh, and shipping? 
17 years, I think. Oh, it is, gosh, yeah. okay. It seems longer somehow because <laughs> you seem to have been around all the time. And I love the way you constantly call yourself Courtbrook, Courtbrooker. Well, those were the days when khaki uh, brook was the thing to wear. And, um, and yes, I was a short-pants guy and, uh, riding around the harbour on a bicycle. And uh, those are the memories that I have uh, of a bicycle uh, propped up against a crane and then going to watch uh, something happen or going on board a ship. And the mm. surprising thing is that one's bicycle was still there when I came <laughs> back. And you were allowed on ships in those days. I can remember my father in Durban taking me down to the mail ship and you got a little ticket and you could go on for a few hours and then be told when to get off. It was, it was no problem. Yeah, the mail ships, uh, Union Castle uh, operated their mail ships and one of their things was to obviously cast the net wide for passengers to choose to sail in Union Castle ships. Mm. Um, but um, there were those visits to the mail ships, but also I used to just walk on board uh, a ship <laughs> in the harbour. And as I said, I was never chased away. Mm. One of the ships I went on board and the British officer said, what are you doing here, young man? Uh, so I just come to look at the ship, and he said, you better see the captain. That was the last thing I wanted to, to do. He took me up to the master, and then um, the master said, are you here to look at my ship? So he said, yes, well, I'll give you a tour. So I got a guided tour by a four-ringed officer to show me around his ship. It was wonderful. And that was the reception generally that one got. I wouldn't say it was always cordial, but certainly it was never one uh, get off the ship. Just a case of be careful here or be careful there. And that was a, a good attitude. Obviously, the times have changed and there's more of the threat of stowaways and, and all that sort of thing. Right. And one understands that there are security measures in place. But as I've said earlier, it's important to keep parts of the harbour open for public viewing. Yeah, and yeah, particularly the breakwater, yeah. which is just a wonderful place. You get the best view of the mountain from there. It's just wonderful. And sadly, there's a big fence that keeps people out. Oh, dear. Do you think that will ever change, Brian? I don't know. You know, I, I would have thought that with all the legal minds around, we could have had a disclaimer board somewhere mm -hmm. that um, that would assist. But in winter, the, the swell does come over there. But, you know, as I've always said, it seems more people get washed off Cork Bay Harbour uh, jetty than <laughs> off the true. breakwater. Gosh. And uh, I, th I think that's uh, something that can be addressed through a disclaimer notice. Mm -hmm. In the same way that the waterfront's got a disclaimer notice hidden away, nobody reads it. But there it is in case of an accident. You also were lucky enough to get onto tugs. I remember also, may I just boast about my Durban days at the harbour, getting onto a tug was a major adventure for me to take a ship out from its berth and out through the, the harbour mouth. Yes, that, that was regular. And on some, uh, some occasions, uh, there were probably 30 or more people on board those, those tugs in the Sunday afternoon. And it was, it was part of Cape Town's entertainment. Um, and and it, what it did was it introduced particularly young people to the harbour. Mm. And if you think back, you know, and, and my friends and I sometimes went down to the tug jetty during school holidays or weekends and sat there until the tug was about to move and then sort of uh, looked pleadingly at the tug master. <laughs> yeah, come on board. And, and the thing is that he remembered probably 
that he had been become interested in ships and shipping in the same way as we were now doing uh, on board tugs in harbors you know the well-known port captain of Cape Town, Captain Bill Damrell. He told me of many excursions uh, on tugs in Port Elizabeth as, as a school kid. And that's, that's what it's about. It's introducing young people to ships and shipping. And, and we thoroughly enjoyed it. And as a result, I mean, apart from anything else, our geography, our, uh, our knowledge of world geography increased. You know, where's Panama? Where's this? Where's that? Uh, oh, look, we're importing this or we're <laughs> exporting that. That's um, very true. I not and, think And that. so we, we, we developed an understanding of trade and understanding of shipping. And it was just great fun besides that. You know, just great fun. Yeah, and you know, we've I've mentioned about the size of this book, the sheer sort of scale of it, of the things you cover, uh, way back to 1859, right up to 2000 and beyond. And you've I don't remember too much about 1859, <laughs> but <laughs> actually, that's interesting because I saw somewhere in your book you speak about something BC of the first people rounding the Cape. Yes, there's the thought that the Phoenicians came around the Cape. Um, again, I don't remember that, but the idea is that they they must have come around the Cape, although there's no formal written record of their voyage. And the first formal record of voyages via the Cape are those of the Portuguese navigators. There's also a thought that perhaps some Arab traders came this way or some Chinese traders but no written record that I've been able to find. Maybe somebody has a record like that, but I haven't been able to find too much in that. But uh, there may well have been people who came this way long before the Portuguese. 600 BC, you say. Yeah. The Portuguese, 1487. That's mm. when sort of history picked mm. up, didn't it? That was, rec- uh, that was the first recorded voyage. Right. Okay, now we're going to have another one of your pieces of music. Another bit of nostalgia here, Pat Boone. Yes, <laughs> yes, tell me why you've chosen Remember Your Mind. Yeah, again, uh, you know, as a teenager, some of my friends uh, were Elvis fans, and um, probably just to be different, I was a Pat Boone fan. Um, we didn't have street fights over it, but <laughs> nevertheless, there was, uh, oh, but, you know, Pat Boone's number one this week, or Elvis's Jailhouse Rock is number one or whatever. And this one I've chosen because I really like the backing both the the sort of choral backing and the musical backing. Remember Your Mind by Pat Boone. Be faithful, darling, while you're away. For when it's time Your heart beats faster 
When the stars start to shine Just remember, darling Remember your mind I'll be lonely I'll be blue But I promise I'll be true And though I'll miss you Have a wonderful time But remember, darling Remember your mind Remember your mind As I said earlier, a bit of a nostalgia trip here thanks to my guest, Brian Ingpen. Pat Boone, Remember Your Mine. And we're talking about Brian's latest book, a magnificent coffee table book called Cape Town's Dockland, filled with glorious pictures. Where did these pictures come from? Uh, Most of them I see are in your collection. Yes. As I mentioned earlier, I was fortunate enough to travel the docks with George Young. And um, after his passing, there was this huge collection of photographs and negatives and all of ships that he'd taken since 1929 Mm. because uh, his own career with the Cape Times was 40-something years. So he'd accumulated a massive collection of photographs and other bits and pieces of shipping interest. And um, after his passing, his son Rob kindly offered these to me. And it was quite a responsibility because... um, When I got home with this massive collection of negatives in envelopes, I suddenly realized what I'd got. And it was absolutely unique collection of photographic material, mainly of Cape Town Harbor. Probably 90-something percent of it is Cape Town, but there are others in Durban or even overseas. But it was a magical collection. It, It had recorded ships and shipping in Cape Town since 1929, And I think George probably stopped actively taking photographs uh, around about 1990-ish, somewhere there. What a long time. So it was a long period of harbor photography. You know, in some cases, a mast had been chopped off or something, but it was the the, um, the nostalgia associated with the photographs that appealed to me. Mm. And so I thought that rather than you just let them lie around, uh, let other people see them as well. So with Rob's assistance in doing some editing of my text and so on, I put together the book and included these photos. Altogether, there are over 800 photographs in the book, some large, some small, some black and white, some color. And um, I think it portrays a, a history of Cape Town that many people will remember and be able to resonate with. Was it difficult to try and sort out how to lay it out? I mean, your chapters are divided into years, but within those years you discuss, say, the Union castles, the tugs, the warships, the trawlers, the container ships. Was that a difficult thing to Um, to work out? Yeah, the the purists might say, well, you know, you got it wrong here, that that belonged to that era or whatever, but... Uh, I've told little stories. It's not a complete narrative. It's mm-hmm. not a complete history of Cape Town Harbour. It's Cape Town Harbour 
largely as I remember it, and also uh, Cape Town Harbour stories that I came across in one way or another, mainly through George Young's writings. Of course, he wrote a, a daily com- column in the Cape Times for 40-something years, and the Cape Times appeared also on a Saturday in those days, so it was a six editions a week. And he used to churn out a lot of very, very interesting material, and with it, these photographs. And there are other photographs as well from good friends, and I've paid tribute to some of them, people like Peter Mellier, Robert Pabst, John Marsh, Ian Schiffman, and others. And, of course, um, my photographs. My son was a bit of a photographer, um, a shipping photographer as well. So so we've um, we've accumulated all these, and then kindly other people have uh, allowed me to use their photos as well. So it's it's a collection. Probably most of them come from the George Young collection, but others are our family photographs, and also they come from other sources. The quality of the book is very good. The paper you use, and I think, Brian, as you said before when we came into the studio, the paper has to be good in order to give credit to these photographs. Yes, and, and what was nice is that it was printed locally. Oh, was um, it? Yeah. So it's an all South African production. But will it be released internationally? Yeah, it costs a bit of money to send it overseas. But This uh, is quite heavy, by uh, the way. It is. Uh, it's not an easy thing to take yeah, on a plane or to give a gift. It's not a pocketbook, no. <laughs> no, it's definitely a coffee table book. And also, among the many photographs you have, and among the, the text, is a lot of your own reminiscences, isn't it? That's sort of very important as well. Your own Yes, it is. Thoughts. Um, I wanted it to be a, a personal recollection. Yeah, um, that's the word I was looking for. And of course, the histories of some of the ships and the and the, uh, the companies that were involved, and a little account here and there of what happened in the harbour, and uh, you know the building of the container terminal, its extension uh, a couple of years ago, or not extension, its upgrade, and so we presented Cape Town's Dockland as I knew it and as I know it today. And uh, and as I say, also stretching back a little bit further than my own memory to mm. those uh, times that also appealed to me. And fortunately, we've got some photographs or other illustrations to show that. You know, one of the things that struck me, Brian, is looking through this book, many of the ships look very dirty. You know, today you see the ships looking rather pristine, the white MSC liners, for example. But a lot of these ships, whether they are passenger ships or whether they are container ships, look rather dirty and run down. I think in former years, of course, ships had coal-fired boilers. Oh, there you go. So they would be coaling, and, of course, the coal dust went everywhere. So that accounted for some of the apparent dirt on the side of the ships. But in, in recent years also, there's a trend where the Green Lobby has caused uh, bans to be enforced on painting overside on ships in harbor. That was where ships did a lot of maintenance of the Why the, would they the hull ban that? If paint went in the water. Oh. But it has meant that some ships actually look rather rather ropey today, <laughs> and that's because the ships aren't allowed to paint overside. And therefore there are some rust streaks that otherwise would not have been there. My I know goodness. that Safreen, for example, and other companies uh, were very insistent that their ships looked really good when they came into port. And, of course, in Cape Town, the superintendents would swarm all over the vessel and 
see what was going on, uh, and so and it was also a sense of pride of people of on the course, ships. They really looked after the ships, and also to be fair to today's seafarers, not only are the ships much bigger, and therefore the painting of the hull becomes a, a huge task, but the crews are much smaller. You know, a safarine crew uh, of yesteryear might have had eight or nine deckhands, maybe more. And today you might have five, six. Mm. So the crews are reduced. The time in port is also reduced. Mm -hmm. And some of the earlier ships that might have looked a little bit worse for wear may have come from a port where they were using lighters alongside to discharge the cargo. And therefore the the lighters might scrape the vessel, etc. But uh, I think most ships, officers and crews, would take pride in their ship. Oh, yes, and some of them look beautiful, as we know, (laughs) especially the passenger liners. Yes, yes. Now your next piece of music, Mr. Brining Penn, my guest on People of Note this week, Nina and Frederick. Oh, yes, this is a nice little song. It's it's just uh, got a nice lilt to it. There's a line in it that goes something about uh, little white birds clinging to the crest of a wave (laughs) rolling by. There's a beautiful image there, and, uh, and that's... That's always stuck with me. Nina and Frederick, listen to the ocean. There's a world of sun and sand Full of sky and far from land where evening breezes caress the shore Like a gentle comforting hand Fragrant blossoms, honeybees Careless laughter upon the breeze A lover's feet into pools of deep Purple shadows among the trees Listen to the ocean Echoes of a million seashells Forever it's in motion Moving to a rhythmic and unwritten music That's played eternally Seashells 
Forever it's in motion Moving to a rhythmic and unwritten music That's played eternally of the sea for you. Listen to the ocean. Nina and Frederick and another choice of my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week. Brian Ingpen, the writer in the Cape Times every week of a shipping column and also has released a number of books including his latest one. I'm almost tempted to call it your magnum opus except that I haven't seen your other books, Brian, because it's really so magnificent. Tell me a little bit about you. I mean, I asked you at the beginning how you became interested in the harbour and ships, but I know you were a teacher for a while at Weinberg, or maybe a long while, and you've always been interested in the youth. Yes, I started a teaching career. My first post was Weinberg Boys High School in 1974, as very much a raw teacher, and um, I ended at uh, the Law Hill Maritime Centre in Simonstown, and that was after 46 years in education. Uh, 23 of which were at the Law Hill Centre. But it varied. I was uh, I tried to teach geography to young people, and hopefully one or two of them learned a few things. <laughs> I have a friend who you taught, by the way, at uh, Weinberg, who speaks very highly of you. Oh, dear. <laughs> <There> you <go>. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, uh, it's it's been uh, fun. I was principal of two schools during that time, Simonstown School and also Pinelands High. And... Uh, the, but the last 23 years have been an interesting pioneering voyage in that um, we put together the Law Hill Maritime Center attached to Simonstown School, and uh, it's been fun. What is that? Explain that. what that is, Brian. Yeah, for grades 10, 11, and 12, uh, young people from all over the country can follow a maritime course where they do the usual subjects, two languages, maths, and science, and then they have the opportunity of doing three maritime-related subjects. One is called maritime economics, which is the shore side of shipping and the economics, etc., involved, uh, trade patterns and all that. And then there's another one called nautical science, and that's to do with uh, navigation, seamanship, ship stability, cargo stowage, and those sort of aspects. And that's largely to prepare young people who may want to go to sea as their careers. And the third subject is called marine sciences, which is a combination of oceanography and marine biology. And those three subjects then give young people the opportunity to choose a, a variety of careers. And some go into all sorts of interesting maritime-related careers, and others go into careers that aren't related to the maritime industry directly. Some have become uh, medics, some have gone to work in banks or in commerce. So it's just a, a nice springboard, shall we say, that young people can use to enter the maritime industry in one way or another, be it at sea or ashore or in the research uh, aspects that are now growing in importance in making sure that the sea stays clean. 
Indeed. And what what has the response been? Have, have there always been people going to these schools? Oh, yes. At Law Hill, we, we would turn away a number of young people, unfortunately. Oh. Um, there's a boarding facility that can take uh, 67 boarders. And then there's some day students as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've had youngsters from all over the show. Some haven't seen the sea before. Some have come from rural areas and become master mariners. There are some that are in command of ships these days. Gosh, and see. others have gone into the shipping industry ashore. And are you still involved with this, Brian? No. I retired at the end of 2019. And uh, there's an energetic team there. And uh, <laughs> they've... They're taking it on. Yeah. And talking about retiring, and you've done this book now, which I see is right up to date, right into the whole COVID thing here. Do you still wander around the harbour? Maybe not in Courtbrook. <laughs> <laughs> no, not in Courtbrook. Um, and, uh, you know, I also find it a bit restrictive, but I take a great interest in what's happening, particularly to keep up to date so that I can write reasonably intelligently for the <laughs> in Cape column, Times each yes. week, yes. Okay. But it must be a challenge that you continue to enjoy because so much has changed. I mean, one of the things I was going to mention about the many changes was the container innovation, really. Didn't that change shipping dramatically, both in the look of ships and in just the whole way the harbour dealt with them? Absolutely. I mean, a whole new part of the harbour had to be constructed. Mm-hmm. Uh, new ships had to be constructed. Custom-built ships to take the containers had to be constructed. And it was a worldwide thing. I mean, our our trade was containerized in 1977, whereas, for example, the Europe-Australia trade had been containerized in the mid-1960s. Mm. So ours was a, a bit of a Johnny-come-lately, but that helped because we could learn from the mistakes of others. Mm -hmm. So when our ships came on on the service, our container ships came on service, we'd learned a few tricks from others, and I think we did it a bit more smoothly than others. Cost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Um, Ships, of course, now are floating box boats, as they're nicknamed, um, and they don't have the elegant lines of some of the older freighters. But uh, remember that one of those, at the time, we're talking of one of those ships that came in uh, could carry about 60,000 tons of cargo. And that took the place of perhaps five or six of the conventional freighters that had plied the trade before. Um, They were automated to a large extent as well. So it meant crews were smaller, etc. So there was a, a radical change. We also saw, and this was a sad thing that I think is uh, highlighted in the book, uh, we saw a lot of shipping companies disappear um, into these huge consortia that uh, put together the container companies, container ship companies. Mm-hmm. You know, there weren't the Shaw Savills anymore. Even the Union Castle disappeared. And so a handful of companies were left running the, the containerized services. What so happened? it was a huge change. What happened to the Roro ships? Oh, are they still in existence? Um, yeah, the the South Africa on the South African trade, there were four big Roro ships, uh, two French and two Swedish, mm. and they brought uh, not only containers but they also brought a lot of unusual cargo, project cargo, and which they could literally vehicular, roll off. Mm. Uh, cargo, which they could literally roll on and roll off the ship, yeah, yeah. Um, and on big uh, sort of trailer things with umpteen wheels. 
Um, and at the time, and we're talking in the 1970s and 80s, you know, South Africa was building all sorts of things from power stations to um, sasol plants and, and all that. And a lot of that equipment came out on those Roro ships. Okay. They were fantastic ships, uh, really high-tech, sophisticated vessels. Um, they All four of them uh, disappeared from our trade uh, during the sanctions era. Uh, we went from nine conventional container ships and four Roro ships down to four ships on the South African trade during the sanctions era. Gosh. So there was a huge bite into the trade, and that reflected in the number of ships that were operating. Let's have another piece of music, Brian. Um, um, can we go for Petula Clark and yes. Sailor? Um, <laughs> right, another more, yes. Probably very pertinent to the subject of our conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. And so Petula Clark with Sailor. Sailors, stop your Clark, and that piece was called Sailor, 
And another choice of my guests, a very nautical people of note today because we're talking to Brian Ingpen, shipping correspondent for the Cape Times, winner of the Order of Baobab Silver. That's just happened, hasn't it, Brian? Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Yes, that was awarded towards the end of November. Unfortunately, I was in Canada doing research on another book, and my son went up to uh, receive it on my behalf, and I was very obviously uh, humbled by it. <laughs> yes, but right. it also reflected sort of a, a team effort, really, at, uh, for the work at Law Hill. A very uh, dedicated team put Law Hill together over the years. And also there were sponsors and other supporters who have played a huge role in getting Law Hill on its feet and then keeping it going and uh, encouraging both the staff and the the young people and employing some of those young people. So it's been a team effort of individuals, several individuals, and a number of very good supporters and sponsors who've been very, very loyal and very understanding and very supportive and encouraging over the years. This Law Hill thing is clearly something very close to your heart and has been now for all these years, hasn't it, and clearly continues to be. Yes, I think it's uh, it's one of those things that one looks back on and says, well, it was <laughs> it fun is. doing it, you know. Right, and you've been awarded. Um, yeah. Just in the last few minutes we have of our interview, Brian, as always, time is against you in radio. Um, what was lovely about this book, apart from the beautiful production, as I've been raving about, is the old names, Elliman and Bucknell, the city of Exeter, the city of Durban, and, um, as you said, Shaw Sable, the Southern Cross, the Northern Star, those ships that we got to know so well are passing through our our harbors here. So pictures and pictures tell a story, don't they, of these beautiful liners? Yes, they had beautiful lines, those ships. You know, modern cruise ships really look like floating blocks of flats. They do. <laughs> and so the these elegant liners of yesteryear, they, they played a different role and therefore obviously looked different because uh, most of them carried cargo as well. The mm-hmm. Shore Savile, the two Shore Savile ships didn't. But Union Castle actually made their money out of cargo, not passengers. Mm-hmm. And But nevertheless, the ships looked really they did. Lovely, lovely lines and so on. The element ships, always beautiful, immaculately maintained. Uh, the Holland Africa vessels, the Portuguese ships and so on that came here. So, so we had quite a, an array of passenger ships passing through. And, you know, many of us remember a trip along the coast or something on the whatever castle or yes, the absolutely. city of something. And those are the memories that we hang on to. And I think I'm one of the fortunate generation that was able to do that. Uh, my father was a church employee who earned very little, but somehow he managed to save up for us to travel near the propeller on Arundel Castle or something <laughs> to East London uh, a couple of times. And those are the memories that stick. And, and you've got them here written down for all of us, or in yeah. perpetuity, as we say. You've even got the RMS St. Helena and my favorite ship of all, the QE2, because we talk about the shape of ships. I mean, the Queen Mary 2 is nowhere near as beautiful as the QE2. Uh, Queen Mary's starting to get into people's hearts as well. Is it okay? Um, <laughs> she's, she's not the traditional block of flats. She's, she still looks something like a ship. But you mentioned the St. Helena. I mean, that was a fantastic voyage to St. Helena mm. Island with five days at sea, a few days on the island, then five days back again. And I always wonder whether it was right that the island should do away with that ship because the voyage on the ship was 
most of the holiday. Absolutely, completely. Um, We did an FMR. We did two FMR cruises on there, and the ship part was definitely a major part of the holiday. Yes. One one had the island spirit immediately. One boarded because most of the crew were islanders. Uh, And eventually the the master, chief engineer, everybody from top to bottom were from the island. So one Mm -hmm. got a very nice introduction to the island and, and to the island spirit. And those lovely people from St. Helena. Yeah. And, the um, saints. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, the, the island doesn't have any beaches, etc., like Mauritius might have or Seychelles. And so if one's been to St. Helena by air now, well, you go there, you enjoy it, and you leave again. But you may not go back, whereas the voyage on the ship was the enticement for many people to go back just to enjoy those few days at sea in really a lovely, lovely voyage, lovely cuisine, and a fantastic atmosphere on board. Ryan, we're going to have to stop. We could go on for another hour, but I'm afraid we have to stop (laughs) talking about (laughs) ships and shipping in the harbor. And thank you so much for being so gracious with your information that we've been sharing and for this beautiful book. It's called Cape Town's Docklands and a really magnificent coffee table book. So, Brian, thank you. And as I say goodbye, what is your last piece of music? It's the prayer by Charlotte Church and Josh Grogan. Uh, It's part of my own faith as well. And so uh, I want to share this with the listeners, the prayer. Brian Ingpen, thank you very much. Oh, my God. 
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions.
Yes, <laughs>